Welcome back to The Table Women, a podcast by and about women in the entertainment industry. I'm Sarah DeForest. And I'm Victoria Banks. It's season three, and we've got so many wonderful conversations and creators of all kinds to share with you. You know the drill. Pull up a chair and get nice and comfy, because everyone is welcome and everyone deserves a seat at The, the table. table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think, and don't let them stop you. Stop you. Don't, don't let them stop Recently, Sarah and I were invited to record this episode of The Table Women live on Zoom in front of the members of Belmont University's Women in Entertainment organization, also known as We Belmont. The episode was hosted and emceed by the organization's president, Jamie Emmerich, who asked us questions that were submitted by the students in the group. I hope you enjoyed this special episode of The Table Women. All right, well, um, for those of you who aren't familiar, this is Victoria Banks and Sarah DeForest, the co-host of the Table Women podcast. We are so, so, so incredibly excited to have both of them uh, here today with us. Um, a little background on both of these amazing women. Victoria hails from the great Muskoka, Canada, and made her home here in Nashville to pursue a career as a songwriter and artist. She's co-written three songs on the groundbreaking 2020 EP Bridges by the Grammy-nominated Mickey Guyton and four songs on Guyton's 2021 Remember Her Name album, including What Are You Gonna Tell Her, which, by the way, made history as the first original song performed by a Black woman on the ACM stage. Victoria was labeled one of the best songwriters in the business by Nashville's Music Row magazine and was named Female Artist of the Year and Songwriter of the Year by the Canadian Country Music Association in 2010. She's also been nominated for nine other CCMA awards. Amazing, amazing stuff. Um, Sarah is also a songwriter, uh, artist who began her journey in Northern California at the very young age of 15. I'd love to talk more about that. Uh, she's toured up and down the West Coast as both a headliner and supporting artist for acts like Daniel Bedingfield and has a huge success on the charts. She has decades of experience writing with artists across pop, country, hip-hop, and K-pop genres, as well as experience in writing sync for, for sync as well. And after honing her skills in L.A., Sarah made Nashville her permanent home and spent her first year learning the ins and outs of the Nashville music industry, which many would argue is maybe a total 180 of the L.A. writing scene, which I'd love to talk about that as well. Uh, and she's even worked behind the scenes in publishing and artist development. So in 2020, Sarah and Victoria joined forces as co-hosts of the Table Women podcast, a podcast by and about women in the entertainment industry that provides a fun, easygoing, and safe space to discuss the ups and downs of the female experience in entertainment. Whether they're telling stories with guests, chatting about new projects, or discussing how women can change and have changed the industry for the better, Victoria and Sarah aim to always provide an honest look into what it takes to get to your seat at the table and pull up a chair for the next in line. Our student organization, Women in Entertainment, is incredibly honored and excited to have Sarah and Victoria with us today as we hope to inspire and support the next generation of women who are taking the stage as artists and songwriters as well. But our belief is that finding success in this industry can't be done without paying homage and giving our thanks to the powerful women who came before us. So with that being said, Victoria and Sarah, thank you both for being with us today. And thank you for having such honest conversations. We are so excited to learn from your vast experience and expertise in the industry. And we can't wait to hear what you have to say today. Thank you guys so much. 
Thank you. Yes. That was an awesome intro. We're not used to having someone else do the intro. It's the fun. Well, it's great writing by the both of you. Thank you. So we're so excited to have you guys here today. Um, we've got lots of good questions, um, some some fun stuff that we're going to get into today. Um, so I think let's just maybe jump into it. Um, who or what inspired you both to work in the music industry? Sarah, do you want to go first? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that's a really complicated question because I feel like for for me and for most of the people I know, it's a very um, deeply embedded thing. Um, I grew up super musical, was like singing before I was speaking full sentences. My mom always likes to say that like people would stop her on the street when I was singing the Barbie theme song and be like, oh, my God, you should put her in music, you know, whatever. Um, But I always was really attracted to music um and as a little kid I would listen to like the radio and think of how I could write that lyric better or why did they use that word so many times in that song they could have said something else and um singing along and then I um I started playing violin and piano when I was three or four by ear really weird for a three-year-old to ask to play the violin by the way I learned um it was a shock to a lot of people um and was just really, really interested in music, but I always got in trouble because I would play too fast. Um, I would play it like a fiddle and I would always get yelled at. Um, and then I was the youngest uh, kid on the youth orchestra, the youth symphony, uh, when I was like four or five. Um, showed up day one, like balled up with my little violin and found out that they wrote music down because I had no idea. I learned by ear. Um, and I was like, I don't know what this is. I can play it for you. But um, I feel like my entire journey has been very um, roundabout and weird. Um, but for me, it was always just a really intense, deep passion. And when I came across things uh, where people like, you have to do it this way or play it that way, um, I'm such a goody two-shoes, except for when it comes to creative things. And then I'm like, um, let me show you. I'll do something else. I'll do it, whatever. Um, so for me, it was a really deep passion and um, honestly something that I kept going without even really realizing. Um, I started working in, in music in L.A. when I was 14, 15, um, had my first deal offered when I was 16. Um, didn't end up signing, but um, ended up working in the industry and started working in Nashville when I was like 17, 18. Bounced between L.A. and Nashville for a couple of years before moving here. Um, and for me, I went through a lot of health issues. And so music was always something that was very there. Um, and I don't think up until when I was already kind of in the industry, I really realized just how hard I was going for it because to me, it seemed really natural. And I like lifted my head up and realized that other friends of mine that loved music did not go as hard (laughs) as I was. Um, so I don't know if that's like a good way to describe it, but for me, it it seemed very autopilot, but also very visceral and very much like something that I just couldn't not do. Um, and here we are. (laughs) That's crazy. That's such a young age to start working so professionally in, in LA. And that's crazy. You've traveled and traveled and traveled and here and there. So I thought when I moved to LA to go to college, it would stay put and immediately started working mostly in Nashville. So it just, yeah, we kept moving. (laughs) What what attracted you to Nashville? Oh, um, I think it was a lot of things. I started out, uh, when I started out, I was surrounded only by men 
and men a lot older than me. I think I worked my entire time in LA with two women and only one of them was um, in a musical capacity. One was like a manager of someone I worked with um, and she was a recording en engineer. It was one day um, and I never worked with any other women. Um, it was a very masculine space. Um, and at the time I didn't realize that that was something that uh, uh, made me creatively shrink. Um, but I, in working in those spaces for a very long time, I had a lot of great experiences, but I had also a lot of not great experiences, especially when it came to the way in which I saw men, these, I mean, all twice my age and they're, you know, supposedly there to help build your creativity and build you up. And, um, at most turns, it turned into a let me turn this into a way where I can bolster my own ego. And that came in the form of, um, you know, kind of bulldozing me creatively when it was my project to more aggressive things. Like I had some really bad experiences with men in the studio being really horrible to me and telling me things that I like sucked at certain things when it was like my project. And then years later, um, one of my biggest things was like, I had someone who, when I recorded for the first time was just like, in my ear constantly calling me horrible names and saying I was all these horrible things. And I really felt like as a young woman, it was like, this is what they talk about in the E True Hollywood stories. Like if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Like I just got to push through it. Like I can take this. And then years later, when I started working in Nashville, um, I had a couple experiences right off the bat where people are like, oh my God, you're like a one take wonder recording. This is so crazy. Like the exact opposite of everything that I had experienced. Now looking back, people projecting their own insecurities onto a very young creative person um, was actually the opposite. And people are like, oh, I can't believe anyone told you that. I mean, I feel the opposite. Um, and a lot of that was really internal. It was a, a big awakening for me. And so for me, it was a lot of like the cultures in the creative side and the industry side were very different. Um, I think that's also very much to do with just what crowds you're in. And I was so young and I wasn't based in LA. Um, that was for me just like a thing um, that I'm sure if I was older and able to go out and do more myself, I would have found some different crowds. But um, to me, Nashville seemed a little more, a lot more collaborative, a lot more open, a lot more human and kindness based versus LA. Uh, my experiences there were a lot more, who are you? Why do I care? What can I get from you? And what can I do to make myself feel more important? Um, and I just know myself well enough to know that like, I, I can't do it. I just want to be like, have fun and work with people I like and make stuff that I like. Um, and I, I uh, found that Nashville was more that for me and now working in K-pop and I read a little Latin music and um, working with teams in Finland and like all over the place like that is really every culture is different. But for me, um, like Nashville seemed to be that kind of happy medium. Well, I'm so glad that Nashville has has become a home and welcomed you with open arms. Um, what a crazy start to the industry working so young in L.A., like the most brutal market yeah. I think like that's out there. Victoria, I'm glad I did it early, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, Victoria, do you think your your story is is similar in some ways or how did how did that differ for you? Yeah, I think in some ways. I mean, so um, I fell in love with songwriting in a weird way uh, 
I was raised in a house that was heated with just wood and my dad was a hoarder of antiques. And so I grew up in rooms full of phonograph records, um, the, you know, the wax cylinders, and we would crank them up and play them when the power went out, which was a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and so I would listen to these old um, sort of turn of the century, Stephen Foster folk songs, that kind of thing. And I was touched by them. And it was the 1970s when I was a kid. And I was like, this, these are so old. And why am I still being touched by these songs that are so old? And um, so it was the purity of the craft and the song that really um, translated across ages. And that was what made me fall in love with it, I think. And the simplicity of a great song um, so I didn't really realize there was any music post-1940 until I went off to school because I was raised on classical piano lessons, vo voice lessons. My family were all classical musicians, still are. My sister's a classical singer in Toronto. And so, um, but once I went to school, I started playing in bands and I, I became the, the token girl that was in, in the band full of guys that would be, you know, the, the garage band, literally recording in a garage <laughs> and uh, playing, the, playing the parties and playing the, the bars once we got old enough to do that. And, um, and I would get paid if there was any money left over once all the guys had been paid, that kind of thing. You know? <laughs> so um, I, I sort of tried to get a real job. Um, <laughs> quote unquote, where I went to school for zoology in Toronto. But then um, I just, I, you know, I, I, it just called my name too much. And I had an opportunity to go work in zoology and then it was taken away right before I graduated. And I was like, okay, this is a sign. I have a clean slate. I can choose what I really want to do despite everyone's expectations of me. Um, so I, I packed my bags and moved to Nashville because I knew this was the Mecca. This was the place where you could learn how to write the kind of songs with lyric and simplicity and commercialism. And that was what I wanted to do. So um, when I first came here, I crashed with a friend, uh, Derek Rattan is his name. He's a songwriter, um, Grammy nominated or Grammy winning, maybe songwriter at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, he was here a couple of years before me and um, so he let me stay on his couch and I just worked my butt off and networked and ended up signing my first deal in 1997. And so that's been what, 25 years ago now. I've been just writing on different publishing deals all those years and then making my own records as well. Um, but I think it, what Sarah and I probably have in common is just like a, a burning desire, a burning love of our craft and also a burning desire to prove ourselves. You know, like I, I think for me, it's been I want to prove that I'm worth listening to and that I'm worth paying as much as the guys, you know. <laughs> so um, that's that's kind of kept me going sort of a, a little bit of a competitive edge um, in in terms of here's something that's impossible. Let me try it. I'll show you I can do it. Yeah, I love that. Totally. And I wanted to circle back even on the point you made about the craft of songwriting. Um, so when both of you were coming up, was songwriting kind of, were there opportunities to learn that craft of songwriting in a formal education setting, like college or something like that? A lot of our students, of course, um, Victoria, as you know, as a professor of songwriting at Belmont, um, 
there is maybe like a formulaic way of, of writing music um, now. And, you know, those students are getting that experience. Um, so for students who are um, being introduced into the craft of songwriting in a formal education setting, what kind of advice would you give to those students um, who maybe haven't had uh, the same the same story coming up in songwriting? Well, um, I always tell my I always tell my students I wish that I I wish there had been a Belmont songwriting program when I moved here because boy oh boy over the years I mean I learned the I guess the the street way I I just studied everything and took it all apart myself and read books whenever I could find books. There weren't that many, but there were books about songwriting, like The Craft of Lyric Writing by Sheila Davis and stuff like that. And I would just devour these books. And anytime somebody released a book about how things work in Nashville, oh, I would eat it up. You know, like I would just read, I'd be like, oh, here's one thing on the market. Amazing. You know, this is what I'm interested in. But I feel like I would have saved myself probably 15 years of work if I had um, had the resources at my fingertips that that students can have now, not just about learning how a song can can be crafted, but learning how the industry works. That was a really big learning curve for me too. And luckily, along the way, I had some people who who helped me out. Like um, we've mentioned on the podcast before, um, Linda Adele Howard was um, one of one of my first attorneys, and she sat me down when I was offered a publishing deal and walked me through every word of the contract to show me what it meant and how to negotiate it for myself. And that's enabled me to, to, to negotiate my own contracts from there on out and then just take them to the lawyer when it's done kind of thing, you know? And that's, I mean, knowledge is power, right? And it's taken a long time for me to collect the knowledge that I needed in, in this realm because it's really specific um, knowledge and it's not something you can find very easily out there when you're not attending a program about it. So, what about yeah. you, Sarah? I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think for me, the only difference um, would be, I agree with, like it would have been so much easier because I also did not have, like I grew up in California, which everyone sees California as like just LA and San Francisco, but I grew up in like a rural wine country town. My mom's a pastry chef. My dad works in museums. Like there was no basis for any kind of music industry, music business, even like technical musical knowledge. Um, and they were like, we support you. My mom would drive me eight hours down to LA every month, at least once a month. We'd stay for like a week. I'd work in the studio till 1am every day and drive back. Like, but they had no knowledge. And so for me, it was very much the majority of my learning how to do it. And even a lot in LA, I didn't co-write too much in LA because um, I was working on my own project um, and with industry people, but um, I, it was mostly just me alone with my guitar. And um, it would have saved a lot of time to have like the resources of a program, um, especially on the business side. But I also think that um, like like I said at the start, music is such a like, I'm such a goody two shoes in every other area that I even to the point of like trying to learn covers for gigs, I could never learn. I still know maybe one cover, one or two cover songs because every time I tried, I would end up writing my own song and be like, forget about the, the cover. I want to write my own music. Um, and, and so I, I think for me, 
it, I don't think I would have wanted to. And I, the reason I didn't go to Belmont A is because I wasn't a country music writer. And so I, I thought that that's what Belmont totally was. I mean, I didn't realize you could study the industry. But for me, I also was like, I've been doing this since I was 14. When I went to college, I wanted to study something completely different. And because I was already working in the industry. Um, and I also, it, I think I have so much nostalgia for like the grassroots, like that feeling of sitting alone in your bedroom, like that OG Taylor Swift feeling of like writing a song in your bedroom and not being able to Google something or or see on TikTok like a million ways of like what goes into a hit song, just like total instinct. And so I think that is the only part where I'm like, I, I'm glad that I didn't have those resources. Um, but in terms of like, I'm, I always kind of come back to like, man, it would have been so cool to go to Belmont and like get to know all these people and have this basis for co-writing and getting to know the industry and all that stuff. But um, I'm really glad that I didn't. I don't think I would be the songwriter that I am and the person that I am. I also think that I, because I was such a goody two shoes, if I had gone to a Belmont or something, I would have made myself go in a genre direction that wasn't authentic because that's what was happening and that's what was palatable and what was going on for that community versus um, like I studied communications with a focus in social justice and I minored in screenwriting and acting. Um, which really helped with the sync stuff and everything. Um, and I always struggled with being put in a box. And so I think I maybe would have, if, if I'd gone to school for music or had too many resources, I would have tried to put myself in a box that I didn't fit in because like, like Vic said, like there's that competitive edge, that's that need to prove yourself. And I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're both very similar in the fact that like, we're both pretty good at whatever we set our minds to. And so for me, it's been the opposite of a lot of people where it's like, I'm good, really good at too many things to the point where it's like, I could, but does that actually light me up? Do I want to do that? Or am I just doing it because I'm good at it and I could do it if I wanted to, which sounds really privileged and it totally is. <laughs> um, but everyone's got their own journey. I think for me, like, I really wish there would have been resources in some areas. Um, but I'm almost glad that there wasn't because I like what used to be what people were like, I don't know where to put you. You have too many genres and too many things is now my calling card. And all those people reach out to me all the time. We're like, Hey, can you come and help this country writer? I just did a reggae camp. My biggest cuts are reggae. I think too, Sarah, that you have really, um, and we've talked about this together, you have developed the capability of networking with people, communicating well, and because of some of your, um, the, the illness that was in your past where you were isolated from people for long periods of time growing up because you were in the hospital, you were recovering from surgeries, um, you have sort of overcompensated in the department of learning how to get in social situations and talk and connect. Yeah. Um, and that's something that uh, has has worked in your favor. And that's something I've had to learn too. And yeah. definitely in one of the most important elements of breaking into this business is your network and who you know. And so being at a place like Belmont, being in a program uh, helps you set that up 
from the get-go, get provided yeah. with opportunities from the get-go. Um, and so that's always my advice to students who are going through the program to, you know, connect, team up, find your, find your tribe, because this business is the kind of place where you're not, you don't typically graduate and then go start working with people who are way up the ladder from you. It's more that you're collaborating with the people that are around you, and then you work your way up the ladder together, and then you start having success together. So it took me a really long time to figure out that half of the equation, you know, half of it is your craft and the other half is who you know. And I wish that I had known that a long time ago. I agree completely. That's my biggest regret at not going to school or reaching out more into like mentors and stuff is um, I, it took me so long to find a community. You have acquaintances and people you work with, but genuine community and your tribe or whatever you want to call it um, is really like an integral part of being successful and not just successful but genuinely happy because we all know a lot of people who are successful and not happy and that's not sustainable <laughs> yeah and i think too um a lot of our students of course they're getting that formal education but the women that came before them they were pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and having to learn these skills on their own and the industry is changing so quickly now especially in maybe the past five years um, in what ways have you both uh, seen the industry change or women in the industry change, um, how they network, how they go about writing and that sort of thing? What, what uh, changes have you seen? Well, I've seen women start helping each other more. Yeah. And more purposefully. I mean, it, there's always sort of been a uh, help the next one along, but it's happened sort of privately behind the scenes um, where, you know, when when I first moved here, I needed help figuring out the the visa system because as a Canadian, I needed to have a visa. So Carolyn Don Johnson, who was here before me, uh, a, a songwriter and artist here in Nashville, uh, I called her and she helped me and walked me through it. And then, you know, uh, I, I write a lot with Tia Sillers, who's been here longer than I have, and, and I've picked her brain many times about what to do and how to handle certain situations and that kind of thing. But it's been more from just like personal relationships, as opposed to now we have movements, we have changed the conversation, we have, you know, we Belmont, we've got, we've got these organizations where we're, we're really um, creating opportunities for women to help other women and to team up with other women. And that's really what has to happen in order to shift the industry. And I think especially in an industry where we've been a minority for so long, um, we maybe in the past have felt kind of a sense of competitiveness or that there's a scarcity to the opportunities. And I think it's become more evident to all of us recently that the opposite exists, that if you help someone down the line, it's not removing a seat, you know, removing an opportunity from you, it's creating a new opportunity that wasn't there before. Um, so we're, we're seeing that happen. I know in our episode with Mickey Guyton, she was like, have you seen the way black women help black women? Well, that's the way women need to help women in the industry, mm -hmm. in, in Nashville, especially in country music. And, and I think we're, we're seeing that happen. So that, to me, that's what the shift is. We're seeing someone like Leslie Fram, you know, working with other women to spearhead the equal play opportunity through at CMT. And they're right there. We're seeing parody in video play between male and female artists. Uh, so it's a marked shift, a distinct shift that's happening because of that teaming up. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that's 1000% yes. And even in the shorter time that I've been here and seeing not just Nashville, but working in other areas, women are saying no to things um, left and right, whether it's no to sessions with, yeah, big people, but that big person treated you like crap. And so um, I think there was so much because there was this competition put on us by the industry, by the people in power. We would say yes to opportunities. We would do things we didn't want to do. We would work with people we didn't want to work with because we didn't want to be um, ousted. We didn't want to lose that chance. And yes, there's always an aspect of having to compromise and everybody's line is different, but I'm more and more, especially in the conversations that I have with women that I write with, with women I'm friends with that are in the industry, um, there's this movement of just like, I'm not going to be treated like that. I'm not going to do what I don't want to do. Um, and we've talked about this a lot. Um, whether or not you are aware of it, because usually the people in power are not aware of it. They live in this very like protected bubble of everything's perfect. Um, for the people who are the minority, especially, we talk. And whether or not you know it, you have a reputation in this town amongst everybody, but especially among the people who um, are not in power. Um, and so whether that means like the way you do business, the way you treat people, how you function in a right, your creative style, even to things of like whether or not you are actually safe to work with, um, whether that be on the industry side or the creative side, um, whether or not you do sketchy business, um, or try and like manipulate things like you get a reputation in this town. And I'm seeing, especially in the last couple of years, a lot more women being super open about like, Hey, I had a really bad experience with that person or like, Hey, they tried to jit me out of my publishing or, um, and it's never in like a, let me spread gossip kind of way. Um, but I also think gossip is very, um, negatively framed and it is something that when, and people do to quite literally survive sharing of information is integral to survival and that goes for this industry and life um so i think on the flip side of everything victoria said there's this really amazing movement of um saying no and sticking up for yourself and upholding your boundaries because we know especially with the internet with TikTok, with being able to release by yourself with being able to have a lot of information at your fingertips on how to do everything for yourself um we don't need a lot of um the things that have been put in place to control us um would we love to spend other people's money instead of ours absolutely um but we don't need it um and so i think that's um on the flip side like an, another big thing that we're seeing in a really amazing way that's like just taking off yeah that's a really good point. i mean it's not uncommon for really uncomfortable power dynamic situations to arise for sexual situations to arise for women who are um, trying to co-write or trying to network. I mean, the, the networking aspect of what we do often involves social situations, going out to a bar or to places where there's alcohol, um, you know, so the the lines get blurred sometimes between what's professional and, and what would never be considered professional in other industries. And 
we have to protect ourselves. Uh, so we, yeah, we, we talk. It's part of the Me Too movement. It, it makes us feel like we can speak up when these things happen. Um, and I've known lots of women over the years in the past who have had situations like this, like that arise and have been scared to speak up because they didn't know how it was going to affect their career or if they would be taken seriously. And I think now society as at large is taking those things more seriously. So that's helping too. And we, it's such a hard line because we also like, we date in the industry. This town is like mostly either musicians or medical students and influencers now, but like, you know, like half the bachelor nation like lives in Nashville. So there's that too. But like, we also date each other and like, that's not wrong. But when it comes to discerning, like, intentions and where is your line and like it's really helpful to to think through these things and sometimes you don't know what your response would be until you're in the situation and so having a conversation with someone or just being like hey i like this conversation was super uncomfortable or even just a friend of mine asked me the other day she was like how do you handle like a guy getting kind of like a little too sexual in a right but you it could be working as lyrics but like it's not really the vibe or even just like i i've had a couple experiences with guys and producers, you know, their their setups are usually in their room or in their basement or whatever, which is great. But dude, like, we were supposed to write at 11. Now you're changing it to 6 p.m. I'm not driving 30 minutes out of town to meet you in your studio basement. I've never met you before. Like, and it's just also things that, like, men never have to think of those things. It doesn't cross their mind because they don't have to worry about that. And so even just simple, like, me saying that I've thought that through and said no to that, I've had people say, like, oh my God, you too. Like I thought I was being too judgy or too cautious. And, you know, and I think it's so easy in black and white to be like, oh yeah, of course you shouldn't do that if you don't want to. But there's this internalized pressure of like, if I don't take this opportunity, what's going to happen or not happen? Um, And so there's like such a fine line because like we also date each other and we're friends with our bosses and our co-writers and like there's all this other stuff that plays into it. But um yeah, it's, it's so, so helpful, like the way that women support each other now. Yeah, well, I think that last point you made is is so important, especially for students to hear. Students as women trying to work in the industry are so eager to be a part of that. And so maybe some of their defenses are taken down a little bit because there's this opportunity that they might lose. Um, I know I was even partial to some of that sort of behavior as well, where, you know, there was this really great opportunity. And I was like, I have to kind of put my my morals my values aside a little bit um which is not the way that it should be but i think it's an important message for students to hear is that if something seems wrong you should speak up you should say something you should talk to someone about it and there's nothing wrong with that it's not it's not gossip in that negative way it's just the way things need to be in order for networking in this industry to be a safe thing um Mm -hmm. so i think that's really important for students to hear But hitting along that same sort of line, um, so many women have experienced things like this where they've had to put their morals aside. And that takes a toll on someone, a great, great toll. Um, And mental health has um, really been, I don't want to say a hot topic, but lots of people are talking more about mental health. And I think it's amazing. Um, And those things do affect our mental health. Um, So I'd love to hear if you're comfortable, maybe a challenge that you've had to face in the industry um, in terms of your mental health and how you overcame that. What kind of tools did you use or what support systems did you both have that helped you through those things? Yeah, I mean, 
Um, first of all, I want to say thank you for for sharing that about your experience because it's it's something really difficult when other people talk about it. It's easy to listen and say that's awesome, but it's also really hard to be like, yeah, I experienced that too. Um, and I want to just go off of that and say that um, the only people who would ever be upset with you upholding your boundaries and saying no are the people who knowingly benefit from you compromising your boundaries. And that is never someone that you want to work with. Like, of course, there are experiences where you're like, oh, shit, like, I do have to compromise a little here. Like, yeah, I got to say hi to that person or be at that meeting with that person I don't like. But um, that's different when it comes to, like, there's always going to be other opportunities. There always will be. And anything that makes you feel icky is, like, not the right opportunity for you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just want to say that, too, because it took me a very long time and a lot of mental anguish to really understand that, that all the times that I compromised what I felt was right, even if the thing that I thought was going to happen, like the benefit did, it never was like actually as beneficial as I thought it was going to be. And it, so for me, like, I think the biggest uh, mental health struggle was feeling really isolated um, and finding a community because you're surrounded by so many people and your workplace and your co-writing and all that stuff. It's really easy to have a lot of social stimulation. Um, it's not as easy to really have true friends. And I don't mean that as like, um, I didn't have amazing friends, but it's like, it's different to have an acquaintance versus like a true friend. Um, and it's, it's hard to know what's what when you're constantly so bombarded by things. And for me, like Victoria touched on, I had a lot of time early on where I was sick and I was out of school. And so, um, I was like very like late to the game and really understanding, like I was alone so much that, um, I overcompensated, but I was also very much, um, didn't know how to be myself. And so for me, a lot of the mental health um, and like the the issues there was just feeling very on the outside. And I think a lot of people in this industry can relate. Some of the people that I have met that have seemingly the most friends and the most fun and they're going out all the time are the loneliest. Um, And so like, it's very, especially with Instagram and everything, like it's very easy to think people have this great life with this great community Um, but it took me a really long time to like make peace with feeling lonely and feeling okay with feeling lonely. And then, um, honestly, I think it should be truly like baseline foundation for this industry, whatever you're in to go to therapy. And that's not always accessible for everybody, but if it is accessible for you, yes, like truly I became such a better person, songwriter, friend, creative when I went to therapy and just like took a look at everything, not even things related to music or my career, um, because it, it's all your foundation. Um, and then like truly some of my best friends and my best experiences came when I learned how to be more authentic to myself. Um, but that loneliness and that seemingly inaccessible community um, was a big part for me. And the more I get to know people, the more that that is also true for a lot of people. And just nobody says anything. We all go along thinking everyone's like great and way cooler than we are. 
Yeah, as a student, I've definitely experienced that as well, feeling like everyone else is doing all of these amazing things and they started their own production company when they were 13 years old. And I was like, I come from Amish country where we weren't even surrounded by music or I didn't know that there was, uh, you know, stuff to do and make money from on the other side of Spotify or Apple Music. Um, and so it's really easy, I think, especially at a school like Belmont where we're surrounded by so many amazing people that uh, that we feel behind. But I love that you yeah. have that. And I agree that I do think everyone should go to therapy. Yes. <laughs> 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> what about you, Vic? I, I second that therapy all the way. Yes, that's been super helpful to me too. Um, I think that for me, the, the most challenging thing to my mental health over the years has been partly because of the timing of when I've been here and working in the industry where I got here um, really at just a couple of years before the female voice was pr basically silenced at country radio. And I was trying to work in a realm where country radio is the bread and butter. So I lost my sense of who I was. I feel like I lost my voice. I lost touch with myself because I was having to learn how to speak within a context that I didn't relate to. Um, so, it, you know, I, I started off writing a lot with women because I connected with women and we had things in common and we wrote about things like domestic abuse and we wrote about things like, you know, our experiences in romantic relationships and uh, just our our ways of seeing things that were a little bit different, a little bit unique, our experiences. And as I was writing more and more of these songs, fewer and fewer of them were getting anywhere. Um, and it was very difficult because when you're living within a system like that, where something is being shut down from the outside, you don't know that that's what's happening until you look at it after the fact. So for me, I was going, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my voice? What is not good enough about, about me and about my experiences? And why is nobody connecting with this? And why isn't it finding its way out into the world? I must be doing something wrong. I have to change what I'm doing. And so th then it was like, well, strategize with my publisher. Okay, write with men, figure out the male voice, uh, speak in these ways that are not natural to me. Um, and I had to really change a lot about what I was doing, which in turn was changing everything about me. And um, so I feel like I lost touch with myself for a long time. And then sort of got to a point where everything boiled over. And especially that lined up with the fact that I became a mom and adopted two girls. Um, being a mom of girls makes you think a lot about how you see the world and how you want the world to be and how you want their world to be. And so I would say really um, it's been through connection with other women that has kind of healed me in that way where a lot of the, the songs that I've written with Mickey Guyton on that project have been through that finding my own voice again, which is an angry voice and an honest voice and doesn't align with what country radio wants to hear. And I say, fuck that, because I don't 
care if they want to hear it or not, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I need to say, I need to say the, the truth and I need to point out when something's not right and I need to talk about it. And um, the only way that you're going to turn the ship is if you're like making noise, you know? Yeah. So um, that for, for me has been a real shift. Um, and all of a sudden I'm faced with this, oh, wow, what happens if I am me? And if I speak from that perspective and if I let go of, um, of my need, well, I mean, and part of that has been like, well, do I let go of where my income comes from? Well, I guess so. And then just figure out what happens, right? Cause it's at those, the stakes get that high. It's like, I can't do this anymore. So if this, and, and I remember telling my husband when I, when we wrote, what are you going to tell her? And it became the single for Mickey. Um, I remember telling him, if this is the last thing I do in the industry, and it may well be, then so be it, because I'm proud of it. And that's the kind of music I want to make. So, um, but that's all been so very tied into my, my mental health, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that's such an important message that all of our students want to hear is that regardless of what country radio may think um, about women writing music, um, being your authentic self is something to be celebrated, no matter what. Being who you are um, and, and telling your story in that authentic way is, is something that definitely needs to be celebrated. And that's what Women in Entertainment is all about. We're all about uplifting um, women who are coming up in their, their journey in the industry and celebrating them be authentic. Because with, without that authenticity, especially from students who are coming up, those changes are never going to be made. Trailblazers mm -hmm. need to exist in order for change to happen. And so that's really what we're trying to communicate. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, is there anything Vic, else there that you wanted to add it on that? I just wanted to touch on um, what Vic said about the angry voice. Yeah. Um, because I think at the crux of a lot of the issues that we face um, is women being silenced. But like truly patriarchy is so afraid of feminine rage. Yeah. Because if we really let it all out and called out all of the bullshit and everything, I mean, there would be riots in the streets and every system that has been put in place would tumble. Um, I don't, I think it was Sweden or something um, a while ago, like all of the women in the country decided to stop working. They didn't go to work. They didn't do domestic labor. They didn't take care. They didn't cook. And the, um, I saw a post about it the other day because it was like um, International Women's Month. Um, and truly like the statistics on that, they overwhelmed the highways and the restaurants because the men couldn't feed their children because they didn't know how to cook and they didn't know how to, they overwhelmed the babysitting systems, like everything. Um, and I'm not saying that, um, like men can't do things. They're very capable, but I'm just saying at the basis, women are the foundation of so much and the world benefits off of our free labor. And that also means emotional labor, um, and domestic labor. Um, and that also means the labor of putting up with oppression and not speaking out. And so when we do things like write honest songs that call people out on their bullshit and talk about things that are not okay and start creating our own systems when we're not able to function authentically in the systems that we are given, um, it's really, really scary for people and, and especially people that benefit from that. And so I just love that you touched on that 
because also like I've seen you as a human being light up in the last couple of years since like all this has come out into the world and seeing it kind of like very close secondhand take on a life of its own has been so beautiful and inspiring and it's not just country music like whatever industry you're in whatever genre or part of this like it is such an amazing template that I don't think we've gotten to see before because it's it's like straddles the old way and the new way of doing things um and so I just wanted to touch on that because I'm I'm a big supporter of letting your rage out like write your songs about it talk about it in meetings um it really is like so so much of the basis of a lot of change but we've framed rage as a very negative thing um don't go hurting people but maybe hurt their feelings a little bit if it's necessary amen Amen. (laughs) and like i said that's something to be celebrated uh being your authentic self and making noise and getting out that rage because holding it in is just going to be even more detrimental. Um, And so I I love that you mentioned that as well. Um, Switching gears a little bit, but staying kind of along that same line of celebration and being, being your authentic self and being proud of who you are. I'd love to hear from both of you. What is something that you are most proud of, whether it's a project or something related to the industry or otherwise. And this kind of has to do with, the the definition of success maybe a little bit too along with that that's a great question what am i i think that i'm just really proud of my ability to pivot and to adapt and to keep finding ways to be in this business with heart and soul and um and it's hard because things change and and especially as a woman it's like you you sort of age out of being perceived as important or significant and that's a tough thing you know so um and and along the way there's also been all the issues of songwriter income drying up so um i've just kept adapting and i've kept finding ways to create value with what I do somehow, you know, and, and so, and part of that now is, is in my teaching position at Belmont and the fact that, you know, I, I did so many, I I used my songwriting in so many ways besides just songwriting leading up to this that allowed me to do this. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of teaching involved. There was a lot of consulting, corporate consulting. I worked with Amex and Pfizer and Comcast and L'Oreal to help them learn what their brand is and I and and come up with words to describe what they do in the simplest most emotional most meaningful way because that's my songwriter skills and so you know write a song with them about what they do and figure out what they do um so I I did this whole thing for for several years and just kept adapting and finding ways to to make an income when the songwriter income was drying up. And then now being given this opportunity to teach has given me a whole new passion about it all because now it's like I get to take all of this experience that I've had and try to pay it forward and equip my students with the ability to navigate the business and some of the tough things about it, you know? So, um, and 80 to 90% of the students that I teach are women. So I feel like I have important things that I can share um, from my own personal experience that will hopefully help them. And 
so yeah, I just, I don't know, just continuing to adapt is my, the thing I'm most proud of. I want to keep doing it until I die. And it keeps you, the adapting thing keeps you quote unquote young, you know, like it keeps your brain young. It keeps your spirit young. It keeps your content and your art on the forefront. If I've seen people my age stop looking outside and stop trying to adapt and falling behind. I've seen people in their seventies write incredibly relevant songs because they're like, they're on TikTok. They like, they're going to therapy. They're doing whatever like it is to keep pushing themselves. Um, I feel similarly, uh, I feel like my blessing and my curse and increasingly more my blessing is the ability to be so multifaceted in my genres and my writing. Um, and with that comes being, uh, uh, adaptive, but like very much a chameleon writer. I'm an artist. I'm a writer. Um, I I think it's really hard to switch between the two, knowing when to put what mask on or not mask, what face to the world on, because you have to very much switch that up. And that changes with sync, that changes with K-pop, um, changes with reggae, changes with everything. Um, and so not just the ability to wear all of those hats, but to do it well and to always do it in a way that um, when I write for other people, I try to be the person in the room that I would want, especially having had really negative experiences with collaboration when I was younger um, and never feeling heard or understood or like I was able to express my vision. Um, and I've, I've been really fortunate to have people come to me after sessions or in sessions or sometimes, you know, a, a year later and say, I've never been able to share that or I, you took that idea and made it exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but further, like there's a lot of, um, of conversations about like how much our conversations um, helped that person in a human level. And so I think, you know, for this industry and certainly for my career as of, as of yet, like, 90% of your wins are behind the scenes. It will never see the light of day. Um, and that's true for every single creative's career. And even like in the industry side, you have so many almost, so many holds, so many like, so many things that are so close. Um, and so celebrating the almost is like the, for me, I consider an almost a win. Like it really is, is right there. And the win is just like icing on the cake. But um, being able to be super, uh, adaptive to all that and to be able to do it with like kindness I hope is my favorite thing and I think you know with this podcast too it translates there like we've had so many people reach out um, and say like this is the kind of thing that they wish people would have been talking about forever and they feel seen and they feel heard I've had women of all ages and men come up to me and want to have conversations about this kind of stuff um, and hard conversations. And it's all been because like, we've been honest. So I think that kind of thing is, is what I'm most proud of. I had another thought about that too, when we were talking yeah. about adapting, I think that the key to that is figuring out the difference between humility and insecurity. Mm, you need to have yeah. humility in order to adapt. You need to go into situations thinking, how can I learn from this person, from this situation? Yes open-minded, open-hearted, how, what, what's new that I can learn, but 
you also have to do the work on yourself to not go into it in an insecure way, yeah. but have your sense of self very solid despite the fact that you have to do that your whole life, right? So for me, my way of expressing it as a creative person is that I feel like anyone who is creative is tapped into a source with a capital S that is bigger than they are. And you can call that God if you so choose, or you can call it your higher self, whatever you want to call it that you understand it as. But when you recognize that you are tapped into a source that is powerful, and greater than just your little brain, um, then you can walk into situations with that confidence, knowing that you deserve to be there, that you are valuable, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and you can start with that, and then you can be open-minded and, and, and adaptive and curious and creative. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, it is important to find that, and therapy was a big part of that for me, finding that, that confidence that allowed me to have the longevity to deal with the ups and downs and ins and outs of this crazy roller coaster industry. Yeah. And that goes into something that I'm really proud of that I think you are too, Vic. We've talked about this with multiple guests, but um, when you are able to do that and, and really know who you are, um, you also are able to really dismantle and get rid of this jealousy that is implanted in everybody, but especially women and especially against each other. Um, we have been told since day one in every capacity that we are each other's competition. And I used to think for so long that I was like, I so was like not a jealous person, but I would find myself being really triggered by certain people or being really angry for no reason at something. And it's, it's not because I consciously was like, I don't like that person. It was because I was feeling like I didn't have something. And when you are able to look from a higher perspective and come into it, not as like, how can I prove I'm the best or how can I get something, um, which we all do, but not consciously. Most of us don't do it consciously. <laughs> um, <laughs> some people do. Um, but it, it, you're able to flip that from what can I get or do to be liked to what can I give? What can I like experience from this situation? And what can I do to make the world a better place and help other people? And that in turn flows so many more benefits into your life without even trying. So, Amen to that. Totally agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Cause I think there's a sense of, you know, especially as women growing up, um, the systems that have been created and that we grow up in and that surround us kind of birth this um, internalized misogyny in a lot of us. And so that is, I feel like what's what's pushing a lot of women to feel like there's competition between one another rather than support one another. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm so glad you said that. And along those same lines, um, I would love to talk a little bit about both of your definitions of success. What does finding success mean in this industry to you? Is there a specific moment um, with each of you that you felt like I've made it, this is it, or is it kind of an ebb and flow sort of thing where it's continually changing? I'll let you know when that moment comes for me. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was laughing at myself because I, I um, you know, just went to the Grammys um, mm -hmm being nominated on the on Mickey Guyton's project and it was my first time going and you would think that would be maybe something that would make you feel like you'd made it but but <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, there's you just always have these 
these uh, insecurities and, and there's always this internal battle that you have to fight with yourself and your negative self-talk. And um, so I think that the moments when I'm at my best are the moments when I feel grounded enough to remember not to let the outside world define success for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't control what happens with my songs. I can just write them, you know, and I can record them and then I can put them out. And if no one listens to them, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, like I can't control that. So if I'm going to define myself by what effect they have out there, how many people they touch or how much money they make, then I'm going to fail. So, and looking back on my career so far, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to win some awards and walk some red carpets and things like that, but those are not the things that I'm going to remember when I think back on it all. I'm going to remember writing the songs that I loved writing. And I'm going to remember doing it with people that I love. Um, Collaborating with people and connecting with people and loving the people that I work with. And so the success is really something that you find in your passion for the work and in your passion for the relationships that you develop um, through, through the work that you do. And it doesn't matter if you ever get what the world defines as success it's it's what makes you happy is what's success (laughs) you know there there are a lot of very empty very sad people who are what we would call very successful and i would not trade places with them and you probably wouldn't want to either um if you know knowing knowing what's going on in their minds and in their lives so i think that just finding finding your passion for what you do living in that place where it's authentic and honest and feels like it's full of fire for you and loving the people around you in whatever way you can figure out how to love them, you know, whatever it is on that, on a given day, whether you're giving them, like you said, Sarah, it's a giving and not a taking. What can you give them? Can you give them a compliment? Can you give them help with something? Can you give them a connection with someone that they need to meet? Can you give them an opportunity that they haven't had? Can you give them a piece of information that they need? Um, all the ways you can love someone, um, just trying to trying to keep yourself in that space where that is the most important thing, then that to me is success. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, every single point there, like if if I finish my life and never have like a number one or a crazy whatever, um, if people remember me as really kind and I mean, talented and everything is is great, but at the end of the day, I've met a lot of talented people who are not very kind. And the people who I had sessions with that they went okay, but the person was amazing are the ones that I remember. The amazing songs are the ones I remember too. And usually the amazing songs happen with the amazing people. Um, but I think that is such a big part of it. And I mean, Vic really hit all of those. And I just wanted to follow up that um, though the ones that Victoria talked about are like the number ones. Those are the the foundation of success, the really true grit of it. But I also think especially in this industry and especially as women, we have been made to feel bad for wanting to be financially stable and successful for wanting money. Um, I feel like especially in the world we live in, it's both very materialistic and very like, how can we make a million dollars in a 
a week. Um, but then also we make people feel bad for wanting money. Like, why are you so materialistic? And um, I just want to say, like, being able to make a living at what you do is also a form of success. And for me, that is like a part of success where it's just like success has so many definitions and the secondary, like it would be amazing to fully have your life funded by your passion and by this career. If anybody in this industry says, I don't care about money, either you're lying or you don't know that you're lying because like truly in the world we live in, money is a necessity to live. You know, this is a music business. Um, if you didn't, if you weren't trying to make money at it and make your career, it would be your hobby and hobbies are amazing and no less valid. But for me, like I, I don't have any problem saying that like money is a part of success, but it's also not the success. But I just, that's something that I see all the time. And it really bugs me when people shame people for wanting to be like, you would never look at a doctor and be like, you should full-time heal people for free. Like, (laughs) come on now. I'm not where I'm not working for experience anymore. I'm not paying to play. Even when people are like, oh, you can write me a song or whatever. It's like, of course, if I want to, but also like, I don't know, are you going to like give me some free clothes from your boutique? Like there's this weird ideology when it comes to creative things and making money. That is such bullshit. Think about your TV shows and your elevator rides and your plane rides. Think about all that stuff without music and your life would be so miserable. So we really need to, to fix the way that we think about money in relation to the arts. Yeah, I actually, that, that's a really interesting point. And I love to kind of um, delve into that even maybe a little bit more. Um, for a lot of the students at Belmont, they have pursued one particular path. So they have a passion in songwriting. So songwriting is going to be their thing. Or they find that artist management is something uh, more of their flavor. Um, but what is y'all's opinions on um, kind of making a shift in your career or doing more than one thing? Maybe, Sarah, I know you mentioned that you work with so many different genres um, and you, Victoria, working as a songwriter in the industry and now as an educator. Um, there's a lot of different things that you can do to build your brand and monetize that. And, and how has that maybe influenced you a little bit in terms of shifting your career path rather than sticking on one path and maybe not finding that success within yourself? Um, So I'm a big believer in getting up early in the morning and meditating and um, just kind of spending some time getting in touch with how you feel about your life and um, making some lists about what makes you happy periodically throughout the year, I'll do that. I'll sit down and I'll make a list. These are the five things that make me the most happy in what I'm doing. And these are the five things that make me the most miserable. Mm -hmm. And then I start planning my time around that, where it's like, well, well, if I love performing with these three people, I'm going to book some shows with these three people. And if I don't like doing this kind of a right, then I'm not going to do that kind of a right anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So a, a lot of it is taking the time to think about things before you just blindly step ahead into whatever door is opening in front of you. Um, And if you can take that time to get in touch with yourself, you can sort of create 
a list of your priorities, of your goals, of the things that would make you the most happy. And then I have a little conversation with my source and I just say, please allow me to recognize the opportunities to work towards these goals when they present themselves. Um, and I'm gonna open my eyes and my ears and my heart for those things and watch for the people to come into my life that can help me get there and um, try to figure out some little proactive thing that I can do every day towards any of these things on my list. Mm -hmm. um, and so once I do that, it kind of helps me turn my life in the directions where my happiness lies. Uh, and sometimes for people that means a complete shift in direction and that's okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with completely changing direction. In fact, it's a healthy thing to do. So our traditional sort of model of it's a failure to change career or to change direction if you've got a degree in one thing and go to do something else. It's that's ridiculous, you know, like, like we said, adaptation is key and that's part of adapting and finding your joy in, in steering towards it is, is part of that process. So, um, I guess that would be my two cents on that. Yeah. People always like to push back when people try to evolve. I mean, think of Taylor Swift, like if she had never evolved past that, like first record, it was a hit record, but like also think where country music and pop music and all that stuff would be without her doing all those things and being one of the first people to cross over. Um, I very much agree we should think of, of changing careers and changing directions in, in much a similar way. Like some people will really push back and be very unhappy. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, people are usually pretty receptive and also who cares because they're not in your body. They're not living your life. Um, I like to call it your meat suit. Like you're, you're just a meat suit for however long you get to hang out here. So, I mean, yeah. if something doesn't make you feel good, um, take your meat suit somewhere else and find what does. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, my switches, I've also had like a lot of really weird other jobs. Um, I grew up, my family owned a restaurant. My mom like graduated high school early and was owned her own sewing business and then graduated pastry school super young and ran her own business. And my dad um, was a journalist and a photographer. And then he ran the business side of, of their restaurant. And then when he was in his 40s and I was probably 10, he decided to go back to college and get a degree in what he loved, um, which was art. And he became an art registrar for the museums of San Francisco and like totally changed his career in his mid 40s. Um, and I watched my family do that. So I think for me, it was a little easier because I didn't grow up in a family that was like, you have to do this one thing and you can't do anything else. Um, and they were both creative people in their own respects, nothing musical, but very creative and very on board for the arts. Um, and even then it was a very scary thing for them to be like, okay, do music. Um, it's very like a, you're signing up for instability. Um, but for me, like the, I, I used to, I co-founded and like used to run like a, a, a cannabis lifestyle company from California. So, I mean, um, and then, you know, wrote a and developed like a script and, and created a TV show for them. And that got sold to an online platform before I ever went to high to college. And then when I went to college, I was like, cool, I did that. Screenwriting was fun. I love movies. Let's do that. So I minored in that in acting and it came swung right back around. And a couple of years later, when I came back to sync, that so helped me understand sync was to have been a screenwriter and an actor. Um, I got into K-pop 
via me making my own artist music and not giving a fuck about the genre, just mixing things I wanted to mix and making what I wanted to make, which is what got me noticed in sync. That got me noticed by K-pop and a couple of people that I knew in sync that were then getting tapped in for K-pop were like, hey, we don't know anyone else who does this, but your artist stuff sounds like K-pop in English. Can you come write some stuff? And I was like, cool, sure. Um, I knew like three K-pop songs, but I was like, yeah, awesome. Love K-pop. And I did, but I also like didn't know 90% of like the bands that they were referencing. I was like, I'll figure it out. I was literally in sessions like Siri, who is blah, 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 blah. And like, like literally muted my Zoom and was like, hey, Siri, who is this band? So everything that you do, nothing is wasted time. No. Nothing is wasted energy. It doesn't matter what you've studied or where you've worked or what realm you've been in. It all goes into the mosaic of who you are. And then it allows you to just tackle more interesting and creative situations. And like one of the best bits of advice that I would love to go back and tell myself is to say yes to things that terrify me, Mm -hmm. opportunities that terrify me. And that's like what you're saying, Sarah, like you didn't know what you were doing, but you did it right. Anyway. And when you see those chances come, don't, don't hesitate. If it's something that you think would be exciting and interesting, give it a shot and dare to suck and dare to fail because that's when you're living on this learning edge that's going to make you into a better person and all of those things go into the into that pot of who you are and then you're better able to first of all explore things to find what you love but also better able to handle whatever comes in your work life and your personal life it all just goes into who you are so i mean i I look back at my zoology degree and i'm using things from that i i went and did a a year of nursing school and i'm using things from that i mean it it all nothing is wasted nothing is wasted when it comes to learning (laughs) yeah i mean the what i studied in college we is the basis for this podcast if i hadn't gone to college and studied communications with a focus in social justice and my focus was very um gender communication focused um and i did sexual assault and human trafficking advocacy um fell into it because of what i was naturally drawn to study which was very much like women's rights based and and how do men and women differ in their communication that none of of this podcast and this conversation would have existed if i hadn't have gone to school for that and i dropped out my junior year to move to nashville like truly i really need to go back and finish that degree but um (laughs) you know when the time comes but um like i said my biggest cuts are reggae i had never done reggae until those sessions we did three sessions with revolution two of those sessions became the two cuts one was the album lead single and last time i checked before i don't know how to check the things i should learn how to check but on spotify alone i had like five million streams and charted at like number three and i was like i had never done reggae imagine if i was just like i don't know how to do reggae sorry like that never would have happened um and now i'm getting asked into reggae rooms where i'm like guys i'm so sorry i don't know anybody on this bill but i will look you up and you're great um if we pivot again and i'm like somehow in screamo next year like don't be surprised because who knows at this point um i've seen the same thing i mean to what victoria was talking about though like even in the industry side um i've so many of my friends have been like oh i love this artist but like no one i'm pitching them to is latching on like but i believe in them so much and they're doing something so unique and then a year or two later they get signed and they blow up because you see that vision if you you see it in yourself when you write songs that differ from the mold when you do things that like 
don't go with what's on radio or what's, you know, industry standard. It's the same thing on the industry side. Um, like if you find someone, you see that light and you see that potential in, it is totally okay to just be like, I'm with you. It's okay to do things to also support yourself and like make a living and have a life, but like, don't forego those pivots and stuff just because you, you're like, no one else is doing it. It's like, yeah, no one else is doing it, but it only takes one person to see Lady Gaga and be like, you're going to wear a meat suit in three years. And I love it. Like is what it is, you know, um, big fan of the, of the career pivots. Yeah, totally. Um, and I love that message too. And I think that ties in really well with, um, this idea of failure and what that means. And just because something appears on the outside to be a failure doesn't mean that it is. Um, it's a learning opportunity and it's a chance to pivot and uh, create something new for yourself. And I also think too, um, something I wanted to touch on was um, circling back to something that both of you said um, about imposter syndrome and maybe pursuing this one path doesn't feel authentic. And so maybe there is this feeling of imposter syndrome or um, maybe you are finding success in your own definition, but there's a feeling inside you that's like, do I deserve this? And mm-hmm. I think that's really unique to women. Um in the industry is having that sense of imposter syndrome and, and do mm. I deserve this? Um, but another term that I wanted to get y'all's opinions on that has been kind of in the social media wave recently is the term girl boss. Uh-huh. I'd love to hear <laughs> your opinion um, about that term and what that means to you and what your thoughts on are that, what your thoughts on that are um, and whether you think it's damaging or not. Mm. So um, I guess speaking from, well, here's using some of my past knowledge. Uh, So my minor was in anthropology and we studied some some social groups and the use of language in social groups. And so obviously the word girl boss is belittling of women. However, when you take a word that has been used to take your power away, and you use that word yourself um, as an empowering word, then that can shift things. I don't see it as a damaging term for people to use for themselves if they're using it with attitude and sass and and all of the all of the things that show <laughs> that show that they are indeed a boss. <laughs> so to, to me, it doesn't really bother me. But what do you think about that, Sarah? I have so many thoughts on this and I agree with you. And then I also want to take it a step further because I think where the issue and the non-issue of girl boss is, is in what your definition of that is. Um, And so I agree with Victoria because it's the same thing. Like I used to hate the word bitch Um, still do when it's used in a con. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so we're reappropriating those words that were used against us. It's the same with terminology in the queer community. Queer used to be a very bad slur. Other slurs um, now has been reappropriated to be like uh, a point of things. And same with the N-word for people of color. That's not something that I can participate in. It's not for me and I don't want to because that word was never used against me. Um, But the same thing with bitch, like that word has been used against me and so I can appropriate. But if a man was like, oh, you're such a bitch, problem. It's all in the context and the definition and what you're talking about. 
Um, and so I have a problem with girl. I love the reappropriation of, um, of terms and words that are used against us for our own empowerment. So what like we in the U S did with the term Yankee, you know, back in the day, we learned all of that in like seventh grade history. Right. Um, but girl boss, and especially like I'm a big TikToker, and because I studied sociology and gender communication, I follow a bunch of psychologists and sociologists and, and spaces online where, where the, these discussions are happening. And, um, I've been able to see this girl boss thing unfold. And I wholeheartedly agree that there is an absolute problem with the sector that utilizes that word. And it's usually straight white middle-class women who are using this word, um, to, yeah, like I just worked a million hours a week and I sacrificed everything in my life savings. But like what you're not saying is not everyone has your privilege and your situation to be able to do that. Um, some people have children, some people don't have spouses, some people come from different socioeconomic and racial and ability and age backgrounds. Um, and so I think it's very black and white. It's very much like the Kim Kardashian, like, yeah, I have some advice for women. Just like, just work, just work. And it's like, girl, I know that's not what you meant, but that's a little bit subconsciously what you meant. And there's a problem here because you came from money and you built your empire on the backs of like bodies of black women and the culture of people of color and all this stuff. And I'm not saying that you are not an insanely crazy smart businesswoman and all this stuff, but there's more to it. And we tend to make it very black and white. So I, for a while, um, very much subscribe to the idea that you just have to like go 200% and just work until you collapse. And I grew up in the restaurant industry. My mom was the owner of a restaurant and she did that. And I very much grew up with that. Um, and it is so not sustainable. Um, and I really, especially in the last two years and going to therapy and learning about myself and purging the collaborators, the industry connections, the experiences that just didn't work for me. And I was doing because I thought I wish I should do them. Um, I found that I actually don't believe or want to work 200 hours a week. I don't want to, and I'm not gonna, um, I, I don't want to answer your email at 11 PM. I no longer feel the need to respond to you right away. I, um, I don't have a problem with saying that I want to have free time and I want to, I believe that it is entirely possible to have both like a fulfilled, happy life and a successful career. And it's very damaging to perpetuate this idea that if you're not successful, it's just because you didn't work hard enough. It's just toxic, not even femininity in a way, because there's toxic masculinity and like, it's very, it shames women for not being successful if they're not able to completely devote their entire life to working a million hours a week and like driving a Lexus and drinking Starbucks like it's a crack IV like that's <laughs> like there's so much that involves and to me it's it's very much like um the discussion around uh body image and what is and isn't appropriate clothing like if if being scantily clad makes you feel empowered, I have no problem with seeing your body. Show it off. If being covered head to toe makes you feel empowered, I have no problem with that. And that was a very long tangent. I apologize. But <laughs> there's so much that oh, goes into it. <laughs> it represents you um, and your successes as a woman, then why not? Go for it. Whether you're a boss or a girl boss, just go for yeah. it. Um, yeah. 
And, and I, I could wanna, talk about it for hours too. No, I just <laughs> want to sum this up by saying, um, back to what Victoria said about Mickey mm-hmm. Guyton, that is so true. Um, but also we cannot be feminist and we can't be on, not be in this space without also including women and people of color, of different abilities, um, of different ages, um, of different cultures and backgrounds. Um, we were just the other day having a conversation about who can we talk to on this podcast that encompasses views from the LGBT plus community and mm-hmm. different races that we haven't had and different types of jobs within the industry. Um, and so I also encourage everybody to not just like be like oh yeah we definitely need to do that but like follow people of color follow Mm -hmm. people of different belief systems and different cultures and different backgrounds um there's a wonderful woman um she goes by teach and transform on i think both her instagram and her tiktok handle um there's a couple of other people that i can't remember the handles at the moment absolutely and i think that's a great note to kind of wrap things up on an inspiring message to students is to support other songwriters in your classes who look different than you who make different music who come from a different cultural background because that is how you diversify your playlist that's how you diversify your social media feed is to follow and support people who are different than you um so i think that's a really really fantastic message to wrap things up on um is there any last advice or final words that you want to say to um the women in the room the students who are with us today well i just want to say you are in an incredible time in your lives right now you're in an in an incredible time in history right now where things are shifting and things are changing and you have an opportunity to define how you want the world to be so use your voice speak up create boundaries enforce them speak up on behalf of other people of other women if you see something even subtly if you see something happening in a classroom or in a co-write or in a meeting, in a situation where a woman, I'm talking about women, but it could be anyone, but where a woman is not being listened to, a woman is not being heard, a woman is not being respected, then stand up for them, say something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll often find myself having to do that in co-writing situations when we're in a room with men who are maybe bulldozing a younger artist, a younger female artist, you can do it in a diplomatic way and you can just say, well, you know, what do you think? (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) You know, give them a chance to say something, you know, give them a, give them a platform. So anyhow, I, I think just using your voice is tremendously important and not being afraid to say things that are not comfortable. We have spent many centuries trying to make everybody comfortable around us. And it's time for us to stop thinking about that so much. (laughs) Uh, It's time for people to be uncomfortable. And that's what has to happen in order for change to really happen. So um, don't hesitate. I agree with that completely. Um, And I want to follow that up by saying, in addition to doing all of that, please know and not just know on a logical level but like a deep internal level that you don't owe anybody anything um it's very easy for us to feel like we carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and like we have to to do everything and help everyone and take on every burden and if we can we should which is true 
but also um, it's really easy to lose yourself and compromise your own um, sanity and um, energy because your cup can only hold so much. And if you pour it out completely, um, you have nothing left. I think women have also been socialized in family ways and now in the workplace to just do everything for everybody and like, and just totally be okay with it. Um, and so I, th I think in addition to yes to everything Victoria said, on the flip side, you also are here in your meat suit connected to source or whatever you call it, if you even believe in anything, um, to also enjoy your life. So do things because you want to and because it's right, but also don't keep yourself up at night and overwhelm yourself feeling bad for things that you didn't because you needed to protect your own sanity. That is super valid. And um, self-care and all that stuff is not just, you know, a bath or a face mask. It's really like taking care of what you need when you need it, whether that looks like therapy or alone time or friends or whatever, and so much more. Um, the sweet spot is right between both of what Vic and I said, really. It was like, that's, that's the sweet spot. <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. Um, well, thank you both, uh, Victoria and Sarah, for being with us tonight. Um, I know there was a lot of things that I needed to hear <laughs> today um, as someone who is uh, graduating in just over two weeks. So thank you both for being here and having this conversation with us and being open and vulnerable. Um, and I so appreciate that. And I know that all of our members do too. So thank you so much once again. To stay up to date on all things The Table on social media, join us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at the handle at sign the table women. Our theme song, Stop You, is written and performed by yours truly, Sarah DeFores, co-written by Taylor Foley and Will Macbeth, and produced by Will Macbeth. And as always, we'll include links to any creatives, music, television, etc. referenced in this episode in the episode notes. We'll see you next time on... The, the table. table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think, and don't let them stop you. Stop you, don't let them stop. Stop you, don't let them stop you.